he's up against uh, a district attorney called Randall Korn, who is the devil's advocate. Uh, he is a rather nasty piece of work. There are some district attorney's offices which have signs above the office saying frying tonight. Um, uh, there are there are district attorneys who get a uh, little um, electric chair paperweight when they get their first death penalty conviction. They are driven by by killing people. Once I'm done with the book, I'm done. And, you know, for its faults and whatever is there, it's there and it's done. And I, I don't want to go back to it. I know as a, a few other writers have tried to do this and have sort of have rewritten their debuts, especially. Um, but they're, they're, they're quite happy to leave them. Hello, welcome to Bestsellers. This is Phil Williams. And this is Natalie Jameson. And today I have you, Phil, to thank for bringing uh, an author my way whose work I hadn't read before today. It's Steve Kavanagh. Um, so I'd obviously done a bit of research. So I knew there were other books to come, other books before this one that we're reading, The Devil's Advocate. Um, but it can absolutely be read in its own right as a standalone thriller, which I think is an important point to make because I think often you can I do this sometimes with tv series you think oh it's on like like series three do I have to like start mm. at the very beginning mm. and then I haven't really got time I don't want to do like you know so much into that I think it's different with tv but I think with writers I certainly I remember the first time I interviewed Ian Rankin which would have been mid-2000s Rebus was well established I'd never read a Rebus and mm. he liked the fact that I said that to him on it he liked the fact that I felt I could go into this book didn't know who Rebus was but started reading this book going this is great and I think the most skillful writers can do that they can do it in such a way there are a couple of lines in this book that let you know what Eddie's done before and the yes. fact that he's got Kate and, and Block working with him but you don't need to go all the way back to those books you should because they're eight but you don't have I'm planning to, to. <laughs> and that I think is the skill of a, a good writer is to um, they can drop you into their pond but they can go don't worry because that's them that's them he does that and that's that right you're up to speed and you go oh brilliant and you've yeah. done all that in under a paragraph you know it's true. Um, I feel before we give away any spoilers or say much more, I think we should just probably get into this episode. So, or do you want to say something else? I just want to say one more thing, which is okay. that um, Natalie describes breaking her nose in this episode. I'm just putting that out there. <laughs> I'm just letting you know if you have a sensitive disposition or if you took it into a bacon egg sandwich or something, or you've got bestsellers on, there is quite a vivid and graphic description. I don't think it was that graphic, was it? It's really? my stomach, yeah. My, my, oh. I, actually, well, it I happened in, to me and I was fine with it. In fairness, I should point out, because we do this on Zoom, it was the mime more than the words. Uh. Maybe listening to it would be okay, but when you mimed these two hands going up to the bridge of your nose <laughs> that weren't your hands, that You're was the doing bit a of, crack. Oh, we've just done it. <laughs> yeah, that was that bit. Okay, fine. You've been warned if you need that warning, but it comes way on, so you'll be fine, I'm sure. If you are eating now, just eat it over the next half an hour. Uh, so without further ado, here is Phil to introduce properly Steve Kavanagh. Uh, 
Our guest on bestsellers today is a genuine bestseller. He's a million-selling writer of the Eddie Flynn series, the latest of which is out right now. It's called The Devil's Advocate, and we welcome the brilliant Steve Kavanagh. And this is easily, and Steve knows, I'm not going to make him blush here, this is easily Steve's best book so far. Oh. This is really, honestly, it's just, this is, you've really raised the bar, Steve, here, taking it to another level altogether. Oh, thanks very much, Phil. No, it's, it's lovely to be here, and thank you, Nat Desrael, for having me on. So it's a real pleasure. Well, I actually was going to start by asking because I'm not ashamed to say because there are loads of books out there and nobody can have read anything, everything. And uh, I am less inclined to sometimes read a crime legal thriller than Phil is. So this was the very first book of yours I have read, Steve Kavanagh. So I came to it completely cold, not having read anything about Eddie Flynn before um, and totally enjoyed it as a standalone. But you know, we're way into a series now. How much do you have in mind of sort of a, a big story arc leading longtime readers through your characters versus somebody like me who's just come to it fresh and, and doesn't know that I'm necessarily jumping into this whole other world? Ah, well, it's, it's always tricky. I mean, there obviously there are some past events in, in the earlier books which are important, but um, I try not to give any spoilers about those. And I try to write each book so that it works as its own individual story that maybe readers who have read some of the other books will see a few things, maybe, but that won't detract from any brand new readers, then they won't be confused, and hopefully everyone can follow along with it. Um, and uh, that, that's that's the idea, that you can pick it, pick up the book, you can start at the third book or the fourth book or whatever, and you'll, you won't have missed anything really, and then hopefully if you enjoy it, you'll go back and get the others. So interestingly, yeah. can I jump in there and ask mm. you, Natalie, a question rather than yeah. Steve? Can I ask you how much, uh, how long did it take before you realised that Eddie Flynn, as well as being a legal expert, has got a trick or two up his sleeve? <laughs> uh, not that long, I think, because there are some nice things like the sleight of hand. I think he pickpockets somebody really early on to get some information and takes a wallet. Um, I'm trying to think sort of how early on some of those things happen, but I think you know pretty soon on what type of character he is, and I think that. I was really impressed because there are a number of really good characters in Eddie Flynn's team, like Kate and Block and Harry, mm-hmm. um, but they all feel so well-formed already, which obviously is because you've written about them in other books for a while now, but uh, it kind of reminded me, and I think this is probably why you were saying maybe Phil, that you think this is Steve's best book so far, that sometimes those character introductions are so sparse, but they tell you all you need to know, and that is such a skill like as a reader I find it really impressive where you realize that actually you haven't told me very much but I feel like I know this guy already really well oh thank you that's that's very nice to hear (laughs) (laughs) but you do kind of hone those early sentences you must do to kind of really feel like you're you're getting the essence of somebody in as few words as possible yeah I try to do that um you know, uh, it's easier with characters that I've, I've written about before because I know them and it, it, things come pretty quickly. With new characters, every book is new characters, it's a new villain. Normally it takes me a while, it's normally a second draft before I'm really finding out who these people are. I find out about them as I write the book because I don't plan anything really. So by the time I'm on my third or fourth draft, I feel like I, I know them. And usually there's one small thing with a character, um, like, I'll, I'll put them in a situation, a perfectly ordinary situation, and they'll do something different, something which, uh, and when I say they do something, I'm making them do something, obviously. <laughs> um, but I think you just think, how would they react to this? So 
uh, that little things like that, you know, really helped me. And, uh, and I guess, okay, I can use that because everyone knows this type of situation, this type of social contact. If, I, if this character does this, that tells the reader instantly and very easily all they need to know about them and hopefully makes them interesting and engaging. I mean, it's a, it's a good sign for you listening to this podcast that both Nat and I have gone straight in with Steve because yes. of how passionate we are with this book. But I, we should probably pull back a bit and just hit reverse. Set it up. And set this story up, Steve, and then where we join Eddie in, in The Devil's Advocate and what his mission is. Yes. So in The Devil's Advocate, um, Eddie is uh, tasked to defend a young man in Alabama who is on trial for his life. It's a death penalty case. And he's up against uh, a district attorney called Randall Korn, who is the devil's advocate. Uh, he is a rather nasty piece of work. He's a district attorney who lives for death penalty cases. His whole passion in life is putting people on trial and then getting them convicted and watching them being executed. Doesn't matter if they're guilty or they're innocent. So Eddie is in real Alabama this time defending this man and everyone is against him. The whole town is against him. They're all convinced that Eddie's client is, is guilty. So he's a lot on his hands uh, in this particular episode. And we should just say, because this isn't the first time Steve and I have chatted about this book, that although he's not based, Randall's not based on any one person in particular, mm -hmm. through your research, you have found that a small number of district attorneys account for a large number of executions, right? Yes, a huge amount of them. Um, there are the death penalty in the United States is driven by personalities. Um, these district attorneys are elected and sometimes they're elected on being very tough on crime. But they, in a case where there is a discretion about whether a crime should be a death penalty trial or not, they will always go for the death penalty, whereas most district attorneys wouldn't. And it becomes a pattern, it becomes a passion. There are some district attorney's offices which have signs above the office saying frying tonight. Um, uh, there, are, there are district attorneys who get a uh, little um, electric chair paperweight when they get their first death penalty conviction. They are driven by, by uh. killing people. An electric chair paperweight? Yes. You get that when you, in some district attorney's offices, I think it was in Lafayette County, when you've got your first conviction, the senior district attorney will give you this as your that's your gift. You're one of us now. We kill people through the justice system. Ugh. I mean, it's yeah, it's it's people playing God, right? And and getting off on that power trip, which is yes. something that we've seen through history, obviously. Um, but mm. also as part of our setup for chatting to you, Steve, do you mind just briefly saying your career background as well in terms of your work with civil rights as well? Yes, I was a lawyer for uh, almost 20 years. I did lots of things. Um, I started off working in insurance insurance company law, really. So um, I was working for insurance companies and defending all of their uh, clients. And then I switched and went to a small firm where I could represent ordinary people. I did a mix of civil rights law and human rights law, criminal law as well, um, and of, of every scale. So sometimes it was a... a a little old lady in the town who forgot to pay her TV license. And sometimes the next day I was suing Audi for sex discrimination. So it was a wide range and very rewarding. Um, personally, very rewarding. Civil rights law doesn't pay anything um, really at all. Mm. Uh, but it was it was a great job. Uh, and I really enjoyed doing it. And I love I, I love helping people. That That's me. 
and it was a great passion of mine to be able to do this. Yeah. We did a session recently, didn't we? You, it was me, you, and Mike Connolly. Yes. And uh, again, I don't want to make you blush, but Mike Connolly was praising you because the other thing we haven't yet ex explicitly explained is that this is all set in the States. And then you mentioned Alabama, but Eddie is an American lawyer. So you've had to, it's American law that you're referring to here, which obviously isn't the law that you qualified in. Yes. Um, and he was, Michael Connolly was saying he's solidly impressed by how you get every aspect of the American law correct. How tricky is that for you to do? Can be tricky sometimes, you know, but all the laws are 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 there. You know, they're all online. I read so much about American law and cases, and how they go, um, trends in case law and criminal cases. So I'm very familiar with how that that works. And having been trained in law, once you understand the dynamics of something, you can very easily apply it to different jurisdictions. So um, it's interesting, and it's I like the differences in it. You know, they're all they're all fascinating to me. Not maybe not so fascinating to readers, which is why I leave a lot of the procedural stuff out. I'm really interested more in the drama um, and the suspense that that happens throughout a court case, um, and that's what I try to bring uh, to the books. But equally, you I would imagine I don't know your readership are people that will want to immerse themselves in this world and they need to know you've got it right. You know, they're not fantasy yeah. stories, are they? You've got, if you're yeah. saying there's a technicality or whatever, it's got to be a correct technicality. It has to be a correct technicality, yes. Yeah. Um, and what, what, what is also unusual, and a lot of people have told me, is they don't often or didn't often understand how a judge can influence things because there can be the law and the facts and you can present everything. The facts are on my side and the law is on my side and the judge just doesn't listen to you. Um, so that always surprises people, but that's one of the things you don't learn in law school. So yeah. and I, that's the same all over the world. I think there's, a, there's an assumption, isn't there, that all lawyers and all judges should be unbiased. Yes. But, but certainly, I'm sure it happens in the UK as well, but from you know what we've read and seen on, on TV and cases we've read about that actually happened in the US, it seems... It seems such a flawed system, like from the get-go. Is that a fair thing to say? Uh, I don't think there's anything more terrifying to me than the U.S. justice system. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of judges are elected in lots of states. You know, so there is a political motive behind them, and they have to have a campaign. They have to be popular. They have to do what their electorate wants them to do, um, which I think is pretty terrifying. And more so for some judges, there are corporations you know who will contribute campaigns for judges and then how are they going to fairly try a case which might involve that corporation or one of their sister corporations so it's it's a terrifying system yeah the, peeling was, back the layers is very interesting there was a point that you you bring up sort of midway through I think in this book where I remember chatting to my husband about it when I was reading it because I was like can this be true so I think it's you're setting up that they're doing a jury selection for the case that is at the heart of the devil's advocate and because it involves the death penalty um please correct me if i get this wrong you write how to even swear in a jury the jurors have to be death qualified that's correct and and what exactly does that mean that means that they don't want to sit a juror who is a very strong objection uh, objection to the death penalty they want to make sure that they have jurors who are happy to convict and sentence someone to death. And this has the knock-on problem of you know, most the most the groups generally 
of people who are against the death penalty are generally African-American, generally women, mm -hmm. um, Catholics as well, with, with very strong religious beliefs. So um, what, you, what can happen is the jury can be skewed uh, in terms of uh, finding a demographic which doesn't represent the person on trial. Plus, most of the, the jury selection is all about this. So the juries were constantly bombarded with, can you kill this man? Can you kill this man? And they're really not thinking, what, what they should be thinking is, well, is he innocent, first of all? Do we, yeah. you know, and so there is a real psychological effect all of that has in the jurors. So they're almost prepared to do this before they even the trial begins. I had a very light-hearted experience of that in this country, right? Much similar, but much funnier, which was I was doing a case where uh, somebody was in the dock accused of knocking Sean Ryder off his bike, right? And they were in a car, right? So obviously quite a serious charge. Mm -hmm. And uh, jury selection started, and the judge wouldn't allow anybody on the jury who'd heard of Happy Mondays or Black Grape. Right. <laughs> and, it, and this was at Manchester Crown Court. And so Ooh. you get all these manks wheeled in, you know, in jury service. And, uh, have you heard of Happy Monday? You go, yeah, of course I have, right? You're excluded. And it's like, you know, it took ages, it took about four hours to get a jury full of men and women who didn't know Happy Mondays or Black Grape. My wow. goodness. And then the twist to the case. So um, it turns out Sean doesn't want this guy to get time. And he's been told, even though it's the first offense, if he's found guilty, he could get time. So he's ambiguous at best when he gives his evidence, right? And even the first question is a picture of a mangled up push bike. Is this your bike, Mr. Ryder? Right? And he goes, uh, uh, I don't know. I thought mine was green. Oh, and he's all this. Right? And I remember vividly the quote that I wrote down from the judge when he dismissed the case was, no jury in the land could rely upon the evidence given here today by Mr. Ryder, right? So he mm -hmm. threw the case out. But the next thing, the case should have been listed the week before, Sean's gone from being a witness to being the accused because he's accused of a contempt of court for failing to turn up the week before. So they have to go to another courtroom and drag a lawyer out to represent him to avoid what Sean Ryder said to me afterwards was, I thought I was getting a seven-day lie down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and on the... Slightly more serious flip side of that. I've uh, been, I've done my jury selection, jury service. You've done jury service? Yeah, I have done jury service, which mm -hmm. was terrifying uh, in that the case I was on collapsed uh, in the end. Um, and I won't obviously go into what it was, but. Because um, you're not allowed. Because <laughs> you're not allowed. But we'd heard like, you know, that we'd started to hear some of the prosecution's case. And then we had to adjourn to the jury room, at which point a number of people in that room were like, well, it's, it's obvious he did it, didn't he? And you're like, you've only heard a bit of the prosecution. <laughs> like, Ooh, do you want to wait? So you've heard the rest of the case, like the defense. Um, so yeah, I think that the legal system generally can be quite terrifying. Have you ever done jury service, Steve? <laughs> no, never have. Would I'm you be, sure you'd be exempt, wouldn't you? I think I am, but now that I'm not practicing, uh, I, I am a maybe perhaps, maybe I, I could do it, but um, I wouldn't be running to hold my hand up to do it, put it like that. No. It's a uh, weird thing. Yeah. Let's um, have you read a bit of the book for us then so we can get a flavour of The Devil's Advocate in your voice. Where are we joining the story here? I'm just going to read a wee bit of the opening, I think. and uh, Keeps it spoiler-free? Yeah, it keeps it spoiler-free. So I'll just read a wee bit here. Prologue, Holman Correctional Facility, Escambia County, Alabama. Randall Korn had waited for this moment for four long years. 
He stood in the death chamber, arms folded, staring at the chair. It was almost 100 years old, constructed from mahogany and then painted bright yellow with highway line paint borrowed from the state highway department, just down away from Holman Correctional. They called the chair Yellow Mama. 149 people had sat in that chair, never to stand again. The digital clock on the wall read 2345. <laughs> it's a small bit, just a just, just, just a, a tantalizer. Just a tantalizer. I, I, had a, I had a cruel question from that opening that you've just read. As somebody who goes through multiple drafts, you read your story loads of times, even when you're holding your hardback book in your hands and you're reading that passage, is there anything in that book you just read out? You're like, eh, I'd use a different word now. Yeah, I, <laughs> almost always when you're reading and you're like, oh, I would have rephrased this. Or should I have a comma there? So <laughs> that's always the way. Always Never goes away. And there's, there's some writers who don't read from their books for that very reason. Like it's torture for them. Or some writers, you know, will, they'll have the, I'll see them, they'll have the proof copy they're reading from. Mm -hmm. uh, but they'll have notes, a page of notes alongside it. And they'll just read that because it sounds better. Yeah. It's a fascinating thing. We, well, I can't remember who we spoke about with this on this series, Phil, but we were saying, you know how like there are so often you'll get, you know, the director's cut of a movie comes out oh, yeah, 15 yeah. years after a film. And I was it kind was of questioning it. whether there'd ever be like a, the, you know, reversion, An author's, author's cut, author's of a cut you know, well, a decade after. So to kind of change loads of things. Oh yeah, there has been. So there was two um, different editions of the stand, Stephen King's mm, stand. Okay. The first one that was originally published, um, Stephen King cut out, I think, about 300 pages from it. Um, and it's brilliant. But the, then there is, the, they, re, they released his original with those other 300 pages back in. And that's the one everyone loves. That's the purest one. But I, I love that book. But so there ha, that has happened. Yeah. Um, but that's a fantastic novel if you haven't read it. Very scary, yeah, quite you... prescient what's going on at the moment. But yeah, it's a great book. That's The Stand by Stephen King. Yes. And can you still get the 300 page less book or have you got to go all in at like, so how many pages know. is that? I think you can. I think can most I look, editions look now have, have the, you know, the extra pieces in because you reissued it. So, so I think most editions now are all the, the Stephen King cut, if you like. Yeah. But I'm have sure you ever there are secondhand copies with the, with the shorter version. Have you ever wanted to do it to one of yours? No. Once I'm done with a book, I'm done. And, you know, for its faults and whatever is there, it's there and it's done. And I, I don't want to go back to it. I know as a, a few other writers have tried to do this and have sort of have rewritten their debuts, especially. Mm. Um, but they're, they're, they're quite happy to leave them. I think it is a strange thing, isn't it? Because my assumption, so I'm writing my second book at the moment. Um, I'm not published yet. I've got an agent. Uh, I've finished... I hope edits on my first book so just kind of waiting for the next submission phase to happen but I what I enjoy about writing is assuming that I'm going to get better with each book so mm -hmm. I think it would just be a this awful cyclical <laughs> process if you just kept having to constantly revisit your earlier books which would presumably to you the writer just feel worse and worse the, <laughs> the more time went on yeah I mean I think a book is a snapshot in time that's the yeah. best that you can do at that time and it's probably best to say, well, that was me then. I'm maybe different now. Um, but but 
the books do get harder to write, I think. I think it doesn't get easier, this game. Um, really? That's interesting. Why is that, Steve? Because you've got what you've done before is there. And you're trying to think, have I got anything new to say here? Or have I not written this before? But it's more difficult. I find it more difficult as I go. Obviously, I have a greater experience now. Having every book, you learn something writing every book. Hmm. Um, and mostly about storytelling. So you have a greater, you have more stuff in your toolbox. Um, but sometimes that's the problem. You're saying, oh, hang on, will this be a first person? We'll have a new character here. Who's best to tell this story? And oh, how do I do this? So, but I think it does get it get harder as you go on. And do you think is there like a fear that it's not going to be as good as something you've written before, or is it just a part of the natural aging process? Whereas you say there are more options available to you, so you question yourself more. I think you question yourself more, but you're also very. Like I'm very much when I start a book, it, it has to be better than the last one. Um, and you can't always pull that off, I don't think. You know, some some writers incredibly, you know, gifted, and they do do that um, consistently. But I, that's, that's what everyone's aim is. But sometimes it's just, well, you know what? This is a good book, but it's different from the last one. Um, but I try to make each book better and slightly different, and bring a new skill to it. But also, now I should explain because I know you've not. This is your first cavernor. Yeah. That that. Um, you set your bar high, Steve, because you come up with a really unique concept for each book, I would argue. So, for example, with 13, the tagline for that book was that the killer's not in the dock, he's on the jury. I mean, straight yes. away, I'm like, I want to read that, right? And then I devoured that. And then 50-50 was Yeah, I, I read team. about 50-50 uh, yeah. ahead of this. I was like, yeah, I want to read that one next, yeah. I think. So that's high octane. That's basically, you know, um, two siblings both saying that the others committed the murder. Yes. And we have to work out who's done it. Here, I felt the concept was this kid, this kid in Alabama, we clearly know he hasn't committed a murder. As the reader, we clearly know that. He doesn't fit the bill at all, right? But the evidence is so overwhelming against him. It's hard to believe. So so it's like, can Eddie get this kid off? He's basically the, the mission of this book, isn't it? And yes. the reason why I went to lengths to explain all of that, in case you listening to this hadn't read a Steve Kavanagh yet, is, is that the bit that gets harder? That kind of finding that unique, it's almost like an elevator pitch in a way, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, the one for this book is uh, he's won every trial because he's behind every murder. That's the tagline for Devil's Advocate. And that's that's about Randall Korn. Mm. Um, so I, I like to have a tagline on my books because I think it gives something really easy to sell and it, it hooks the reader in. I want the reader to see the tagline, see the cover, see the tagline, go, oh, pick it up um, off the shelf. There has to be some, because there's so many brilliant books out there. I think, you know, I want them to be able to draw into that. And there has to be something that closed the deal, if mm. you know what I mean. Something and how simple. early on in the writing process do you come up with that tagline? And is it you that's coming up with it or is, the, is it the marketing team? Well, mostly it's me, um, but there is a, there is a team, you know, um, so 13, I had it. That was the basis for the book. That was my outline for the book was the tagline. Um, and same with 50-50, you know, two sisters are on trial uh, for murder. One, one is innocent and one is guilty, uh, but you don't know which one. Don't tell me. Um, so it's something that creates, you know, it's something unusual. The, 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 uh, the hope is that the reader you know, sees the cover, reads the tagline and then goes, ooh, that's, you know, there's a noise, they're intrigued. And that's 
hopefully then, well, and then when they read the book, hopefully I've got them then. If they're all right, I like this, I might go and read another one. That's, yeah. that's the aim, that's my cunning plan. So when you were saying as well that sometimes you haven't really sussed out the new characters that you're writing about until like the third or fourth draft, mm -hmm. what's the version of them that appears in the first draft? As in, do you know enough, but they're just a bit flat? Or are you kind of saying, you kind of did saying the baddie does something about this here, I'm not quite sure. And then you kind of move on and, until you've got that draft out of the way and then you'll go back and hone it. Sometimes I can't see them very clearly. Um, and that takes a wee bit of time. But um, it's quite often there'll be a, there'll be a scene uh, later on in the book where they're doing something and I know them a bit better. And there will be a very small thing which, which totally belies their character. And that's a great, that's the popped open now. So I can go back uh, and give a little more hints about that, about their, well, mostly it's about their psychology and their thinking and how they act. And I can fill that in a little bit. So it's, it's I have, when I starting writing the character, the character, I have an outline of them. I have a basic shape. And as I write, I'm coloring them in, put it like that. And by the time I've colored them in quite a bit, hopefully it should be a complete picture. And Randall Korn, who is one of the people we are not rooting for in this book, uh, I really like that you describe him as having this stench there's sort of something rotten at his core which kind of mm -hmm. precedes him and um I mentioned this to Phil before I always really like when all your senses are evoked as a reader and I feel there are a lot of smells in your books you know that I uh, there's another one I, I mean there's loads but there's I can remember one where I think Eddie Flynn someone hands him a fried egg sandwich and he just has to chuck it away because it's just the smell was too overpowering at that time and, and I kind yeah. of really like that you get that as a reader do you purposely try and put those smells in I do, I do. I think um, you have to try and use all the senses. And sound is a big sense as well. I know people are reading and they're reading silently, but I will often accentuate and punctuate sounds um, to, and give, to give things rhythm. Um, and try, I, I, again, try to make people feel hot, you know, when they're reading, because it's, it's very hot in Alabama during this novel. So yeah, the more and touch and texture and everything, I think all of that draws the reader further into the book and gives them a more real experience. Um, books that I love are very often when I'm reading something and I think, oh, I felt that before, or I know what that's like. And that connects the reader very strongly to the book. So I try to bring as much sense uh, in as, as possible, to try and, and, and connect the reader to the book. This is also because what I, what I like to read too. Natalie, what stench did you imagine off Randall Corn, just out of interest? Uh, well, it's, you describe it really well. So at various points, you sort of you you liken it to some of the natural rotting vegetation that you get in the hot sun, but how the stench that is often around dead bodies or that. So I think I was like thinking it's, it was sort of that stench that has rubbed off, if you like, on Randall Corn because he's been involved in so many deaths. It was almost like a so yeah, probably like a in a in a British term as somebody who's got two kids, a husband and four cats. It's probably like the smell of like uh, that badger that was in the garden for a really long time. <laughs> Nobody yeah. realised that it died, and just like you know, it's like really <laughs> off, but you don't quite want to investigate it because it's yes. going to be really grim. It's it, that was a sort of a metaphor. You know, he reeks of death, and of course, mm -hmm. the the smell is. We're not going to give any spoilers away, but the smell is explained later on. Um, it's not a supernatural thing, but it's a very strong metaphor. Uh, I thought and really 
because of his strong association with the, with, with the execution chamber, I think it, it, it really helped, helped bring out his character more and make him more sinister. And the other thing we should explain is that, um, and maybe people will make a natural connection because of where the story is set, but there's um, a strong historical background, isn't there, to, to the racism that is enveloped in this storyline? There is, yeah. Um, that was a part of what I wanted to write about. And there is a, a very old um, organization called the White Camellia, who were real. Um, and they operated in the 1870s. And they were very different from the Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan tended to be generally per, you know, pretty badly educated um, white people. Uh, whereas the white community, again, are all white, but they were powerful landowners and judges and, uh, you know, merchants. They were, they were sort of the top tier of white society. And they perpetrated a number of, of horrific crimes and then sort of disbanded. So uh, I wanted to see if I could bring that back and use that for this, but enough time had passed. Um, and I thought, well, I wonder if is it possible something like that could ever happen again. And of course, with the events going on in America at the moment, um, it seemed that it's possible that that could happen. I would never ever want to amplify a real um, right-wing group, a racist group. So I thought I'll, I'll, I'll resurrect an old, long dead one um, and use that. But it's more I expanded the, the question of racism into really the sort of the choice. A lot of this book is about the choice that is sometimes presented to people, where something wrong is going on, something wrong is happening, but it's not happening, happening to you yet. But you know it's wrong. And the question is, at what point do you stand up and say, no more, that's not right? And that, that point can be very, very difficult for people. For example, when Salman Rushdie published the, the Satanic Verses, uh, obviously the, the fatwa was issued against them. And Penn International said, um, we need to do something about this. And Salman's friend, Christopher Hitchens said, well, we're going to sign a joint declaration because we support this man and we're writers. So if the fatwa applies to him, it applies to everyone. And lots of authors signed it. The one author who was very reluctant to sign it was Arthur Miller. He wrote The Crucible. Mm. And you would have thought, well, if anyone would sign it, Arthur would sign it. Um, and he did eventually sign it, but he was very worried about it. Because obviously there's something which, which plays, plays on the mind and it is not an easy thing to do because you have family and everything else, uh, and people who worry about you and people you have to take care of. Um, so that's that's a question which is sometimes asked of people in society, and I think it was an important one and one I wanted to bring. So it makes the whole thing a bit more universal, so it applies to everyone. Yeah, but I think it's a really clever point you bring up throughout the book because obviously the overarching issues that you're dealing with, uh, so the man on who's at the heart of the court case is black and it's a white district attorney, but there are um, black people in Eddie Flynn's team as well. Mm -hmm. um, what was the point I was trying to make? Uh, so I think you've got the kind of big overarching what's what's right and wrong in those scenarios, but you sort of show all the increments along the way about if you make a choice here, is that is that the moment when you actually then marked your card and said, you're not gonna stand up or you've slipped to the wrong side and yeah. you are now a racist. Um, 
Yeah, and, and that, that goes through, there's lots of different characters you're faced with that. And there are some characters in the book who have made the wrong choice and who have regretted it and are now trying to make up for it. You know, so redemption is a strong theme as well. So hopefully that it, the, the reader will see an overall theme there. And it might, you know, force them to ask themselves a few difficult questions. Hopefully not. Hopefully they're going to be too entertained by the book to be doing any of that business. It's very entertaining. But on the racism themes that you discuss to my mind really well in the book but you know because it's always such a sensitive issue anyway is there are there people that you culturally check some of your black characters against or how do you research some of those stories I'm, I mean you know I know that American history is listed with civil rights cases from Emmett Till onwards or even before that mm-hmm. um but sort of how do you come at that as a, as a white author from, Be- from Belfast? I think my job helped me a lot with that. Um, so I was a civil rights lawyer. And one of my specialities was discrimination cases. So, for example, in 50-50, there's a strong theme of sex discrimination in that book. And I've drawn on that from my experiences representing um, women who have experienced sex discrimination. And for the, I've done race discrimination cases. Um, in 2010, I won the award for the largest amount of damages ever awarded by a court for race discrimination. And I think that award still and still hasn't been before that as far as I know. So when I'm doing that, when I'm representing someone, I think I have to understand them. I have to try as much as I possibly can, perhaps more than people do in their ordinary lives, put myself in their shoes and try and understand things from their perspective. I will never know what it's like to be discriminated against as a woman or to be discriminated against as an African American or an Eastern European or whatever. I won't, I won't ever know what that's like, but I think I maybe have a greater sense of it than perhaps others. And I have been very lucky, you know, there have been Af- very good African American writers who have endorsed it, read the book and endorsed it and lent their support to it. Um, and uh, so I, I try to get it as, as right uh, as I can, um, and hopefully, I think if, so far it's been okay. Again, I'm just trying to I'm just trying to give a sense of of this to people. Yeah, I mean, there's so much injustice in like the legal systems. Just sort of laying out, you know, Phil, you were saying early on the the evidence is stacked against the African American. Mm young lad at the center of this but mm-hmm. reading it you're like but how can that be it's clear he didn't do it <laughs> it seems so unfair yeah it is very unfair I mean, that's a big the big thing that goes through my books is injustice um there's something that's very that's a big uh, big thing for me so i i, I that's it always features in my in my novels well, I want to get across that the um there's a huge pace to Steve's work and the, that when I said at the very beginning that you've raised the bar here it's that's one of the areas for me where you excel it's the pacing of the story but also there's then this there's this sense of looming dread coming at the end as to whether they can pull this off in time or not and when you add that to some of the trickery that eddie's famed for that's the buzz of this story for me so whilst everything we've discussed is pertinent is valid and it is all there and it is in the text i love the fact that it's set historically it's also a roller coaster and i want people to remember that because that's why you want to read a book Oh, thank you very much. That's very nice of you to say. Do you feel that though? I mean, you must, I mean, I've seen all the quotes on Twitter. You've got some amazing people chucking quotes at you left, right and centre for this book. Do you feel it's a benchmark book for you? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm quite proud of this one, I have to say. 
Um, it's different from some of the other ones. There are more character perspectives in this one than perhaps in other books. Um, there are more points of view. So it was a bigger juggling uh, act. And obviously it's much more serious issues dealt with in this novel. So 50-50, there are some serious issues. 13, there's no serious issues. It's pure entertainment. Um, there's a couple of little issues I bring up you know, here and there in 13. But mm. this one has obviously very serious issues behind it. And I wanted to see could I marry the two in this book and to make an to give the, the novel greater emotional resonance for people. Um, what I'm interested in as well is choosing your crime. So obviously there's a concept that you're you're going for, but yeah, it's interesting hearing you talk about that too, because the again, this is not a spoiler, like we find this out really early on. So the the case hinges around the death of a young woman mm -hmm. um who was killed by a man. Uh and that notion of violence against women often puts me off watching say an ITV drama or sometimes reading a book mm -hmm. uh, but it doesn't here because whilst that hinges off you know it's, it's the sort of um it's obviously at the core of the story it's not dwelt upon and it's not it doesn't feel gratuitous uh in the way that you describe it because there's a bigger much bigger reasoning behind it but do you how carefully do you think about the social, wider social implications of some of those crimes that you're you're dreaming up for these stories? Very much so. Um, so, so for example, the, the murder um, of Skyler is never described in the book. You no. don't see it. That we cut away. Um, so I don't ever want. I don't like um, portraying violence against women. Who regularly like portraying much violence in the books at all, really. Sometimes you have to. Um, but I'm very careful about it. I'm very conscious of it. Uh, again, I think because of my civil rights background. So, for example, if you totted up all the people who died in my books, I think I've killed much more men than I have women. Yeah. Um, in my novels. Uh, so, but I, not that I keep a running tally of the people <laughs> I've murdered. <laughs> but it's something I'm very conscious of because um, uh, I think it's a, that's a very important issue and uh, violence has to be very carefully uh, used if it's used at all. It's a really, that's a really good point. It's a good question you asked, Nat, because I have the similar, since I've become a father, and Steve, we know you've got kids as well, I have a, a similar reaction now to anything about missing kids. I used to be able yes. to watch that stuff, no problem at all, anything. And then any, I get, and you would be amazed, Steve, how many books I've been sent this year about missing kids and I can't even touch them. Yeah. There are some people that just, you know, there's that, you know, and there's obviously there's the great trope of, you know, any, any sort of harmed animals that's off lots of readers, you know, there could be 14, you know, people murdered in a book. But if, if the cat is <laughs> harmed, it's, Oh my yeah, God! Yeah, You'll see yeah, the reviews. Yeah. They killed the cat. I put yeah. this book down. Yeah, um, and because people are just very sensitive to that, and I can understand that. You know, I never want to make anyone feel uncomfortable reading anything that I've written. But I also, it goes back to what you said. It's entertainment, isn't it? So if I'm picking this up or any book, it's because I might have had a terrible day. I might need to be released from my day and put into this fictional world that you've created. And so it can't jar in any way, shape or form. So then that's quite tricky when you're a crime writer, isn't it? Because obviously crime's then the currency to a degree. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's a fine line to walk, I have to say. Um, because obviously you can't lessen what's happening and say, oh, this is all fine. You can't make it cartoonish. 
but it's trying to make it uh, engaging and entertaining and never in any way making the reader feel uncomfortable. Um, as there are some times when I, I deliberately want them to feel uncomfortable, uh, but that never involves vi uh, violence against a, a more vulnerable person. So for example, in, in I think the most, probably the worst thing I've written is the scene in 13 where the, the villain who has a very particular medical condition that means he can't feel pain, uh, he breaks his own nose on a door. Um, and I've described in detail how he did it uh, without hurting the rest of his face. And that, a lot of people are freaked out by that because there is real detail about how he wants to break to go and what happens and what it's like. All of that is to make that villain more scary and he's hurting himself. Yeah. So I thought yeah. I can get away with that one. Yeah. Yeah, I've yeah. broken my nose twice. So uh <laughs> have you it's not pleasant, is it? No, it sounds like have you broken your nose as well? I have broken my nose, yes, yeah, not good. Yeah, so I broke my nose once when I got um I got knocked off my bike by a car when I was a teenager. And then when I went to the doctors, they were gonna book me in for surgery to break it back, and then as they were examining it, they could feel the bone shifting, so they just broke it back yeah. in the doctor's surgery. Um, they can't do that, they just yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it's painful. Um, so that's good. I had a. I have uh, to put a warning on this podcast now. <laughs> <laughs> There's no particular detail there. It's fine. I've also given birth to two children. I can tell you which is more painful. There you go. Um, so <laughs> I just wanted to bring up one line that made me smile, even though it's to do with your awful Randall Corn, uh, where you write uh, whipping his suit jacket from the hanger in the corner, Corn slit his arms through the sleeves and flipped the jacket over his head as he walked out of the office, Tom following, which brought to mind as somebody who's watched the west wing all the way through west wing. is that a west wing reference that's a little west wing reference yes yay <laughs> do you know why martin sheen always it's, put it's, his coat it was like something that? it's something to do with his shoulder right or is yeah, it he's particular... a bad shoulder people thought he was, he's invented that for the character but no he's a bad shoulder that's how he always puts his jacket on yeah I, I, we, I was watching the west wing last year and i thought <laughs> yeah that's a really good way because it's just it gives him a little bit more flair and makes him it makes him uh, stand out a little bit more. And I'm sure some West Wing people will say, "Oh, I, I know, I can imagine that. I've seen someone else." I totally that. did. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. that was the kind of thing. There are so you know, if you haven't seen the West Wing, it's basically the way that Martin Sheen, who plays the president of the United States, puts his jacket on in this particular way that I just described. But it's so because it's unusual, you notice it every time he does it. So it yeah, also I've... makes corn more real. Mm. If he does something a little bit unusual. It makes him slightly more, it doesn't just put his jacket on, he puts it on in a particular way. It's all little details like that that build up a, a picture of the, that makes the character seem more, more solid. And you know, I was thinking when I was reading it, Stephen, if I was an actor, would I rather play Corn than Eddie Flynn? Do you know what I mean? It's almost, you've created that kind of role where you think, oh, it'd be so much fun to play that heinous villain, you know? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, the villains are really important. I like to have a good villain in the book. Yeah, actually, just before we get your recommendations, are there adaptations in the works for some of these? No. no. Oh, come on, Hollywood, sort it out. There needs to be. Not at the moment. Hopefully. There should be, there should be Steve, shouldn't there? These are rife yeah. to be turning to films, aren't they? Yeah, well, you never know. We have to, have to see what happens. I what, what would, what would you prefer? And... Would you prefer a movie or would you prefer like a really good, say, 10 one hours on Netflix or Amazon or something where they can really get into it? I don't know, to be honest. Um, I think looking at TV now, you could really see how that could work really well. 
Um, so maybe, I mean, I'd be, I would be open to uh, all sorts of, uh, of explanations, but there's, there's nothing actively in development uh, at the moment. Well, it's a great character as somebody who used to love, you know, like the John Grisham movies that like a time to kill and all those kind of things. I can absolutely see these happening. So I hope it does. Um, which I suppose just brings us to what other stories have you been loving either recently or not so recently or cookbooks that you want to recommend to people? Or cookbooks. Um, <laughs> I will recommend a cookbook. Mm, yay. Well, Finally, you get your way. What is the name of this book? Oh my God. No, I can't remember. <laughs> Can you remember who it's by? Oh, yes, I do remember it. So this is a novel, which is also a cookbook. Oh, wow. And it's called The Debt to Pleasure by John Lanchester. I haven't read it. I'm totally going to buy it. This is an old one. Um, I think it was published in the 90s. And from memory, it's about, it's written as if it's from, there's a character who's a literary critic called Tarquin Winnow from memory. <laughs> And this is his memoirs you're reading. It's, it's his, his life told through a series of seasonal menus. And there are real recipes in the book. I've made the stew recipe a couple of times. And, uh, but it also tells his life story. And uh, it's quite witty and funny. And as you're, but as you're reading it, you very subtly realize there's something else going on here. And that's all I can tell you. Okay. I don't want to spoil this nah. for you at all, but it is, it's, it's a very cleverly written book. Win, winner of the Whitbread it. First Novel Award, 1996. There you go. He's written really good books since. So The Debt to Pleasure, I think, uh, it's only a short book, is, is, a, is a recommendation there. For so, and it's got real recipes and it's a book. I hope that's okay. Perfect. Yeah, and that's great. by John Lanchester. And Natalie's writing that down right now and just going straight <laughs> onto her local bookstore to find it. Any others for us, Steve, that you've loved recently? Um, I loved Sarah Hillary's Fragile. I thought that was a great book. Um, uh, it's, it's a brilliant story uh, about um, people who, who don't really have novels written about them, really, put like that. More of the, the more vulnerable people in society. Mm -hmm. And it's about uh, this um, young girl who was in care and she kind of get, works her way in or gets taken in by a rich couple or particularly a rich man to be a, like a live-in cleaner for him. Um, and it's all very, you know, it's, it really reminds me of Rebecca quite a bit, um, Daphne Maurier, and it's beautifully written and very intriguing. And you don't really know what's going on here because a lot of the time, it's a very interesting uh, book. I really enjoyed it. Um, very reminiscent of Patricia Highsmith as well. And then as an old one, while I've mentioned Patricia Highsmith, I will also mention A.A. Dan's new book, The Blood Divide, is fantastic. Imran Mahmood's new book as well, I know, I know what I saw, is great. And I'm reading at the moment um, Basim Khan's new one. So get those. Uh, but if we're going to go for a classic, Patricia Highsmith's um, Ripley books, The Talented Mr. Ripley, start with that. I, I, love, I love those books. I think she's just brilliant uh, in getting a really, the, the character of Tom Ripley is appalling. He's an, an appalling individual. But she makes you fall in love with him. And you're kind of on his side. And there's an incredible skill in doing that. At the same time, you are unsettled by him, 
Mm. Uh, but you are, it's, it's just an incredible piece of work, that. It's a manipulation, really, of, of the reader into really enjoying spending time with this killer. There's a fabulous novel um, published called Razorblade Tears by S.A. Cosby. I've just started that. It's a fantastic book. Very different from what I do. But uh, what I was trying to do with this book was try and create more of an emotional resonance with a lot of the themes and the characters in it. But Sean just writes emotion on the page effortlessly. And that guy's a real gift. I read his first, I was sent his debut novel very early on because we have a same editor in America. I read it, and I thought, this guy's a genius. This Blacktop Wasteland was his first one, um, published in the UK anyway. And I thought, this guy's going to be great. Um, I told everyone about it. And that's what I do. If there's a new author coming through, that's great. Go and read this guy. He's fantastic. But uh, Sean's going to be a big, big star. You know, you can see him being like an Elmer Leonard in a couple of years. He's fantastic. So big recommendation there for Sean. Wow. All good things. So much to read. Yes. <laughs> Steve, listen, thanks so much for dropping by bestsellers. We've loved having you on. And this is a tour de force, the devil's advocate. And um, thank you so much for, for coming and talking to us about it and taking these questions. We really appreciate it. Thank you all so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. So I just want to tell you listening something that we said to Steve after we'd recorded, which is that, that and, and we, well, I genuinely mean this, and I know Natalie does as well, the genuine joy of doing this podcast above all else, because it's great talking to the writers. We both love writers. We both love reading. But I love nothing more than when Natalie brings a book to me that I've never heard. I'm going, we've got to do this on bestsellers. And it's already happened a couple of times earlier in the season. And now this was my turn to come to you and go, Steve Kavanagh. And, and you loved it. Then I'm really pleased. It's just, I just think it's one of the, best things in the world when someone gives you a book and you go I've never heard that oh never heard of it and then you get stuck in and you're like ah oh, and trying to carve out I know we've both said this before as well you try and carve out 10 minutes in your day don't you where you think oh I'm gonna forget to that early I could do another chapter yeah yeah and, and you know it was and I know we kind of talked a lot in this episode about some of the meaty issues mm. that it does discuss but overall it is so fun to read mm. this story it's you know you described it as a roller coaster I think and and it is that. And yeah, I mean, if we had more time, I would have loved, oh, well, he's not going to give away all his tricks of the trade, I'm sure. But, you know, the rhythm and the pacing that, that Steve gets to this book, obviously, I will read some more now, um, is, is quite remarkable. And he does do that by evoking all of your senses. So, you know, if I'm, I'm kind of thinking of all the times where he talks about the silence and the oppression of the humidity, mm -hmm. and then you hear a twig snap. And it does feel really cinematic. And you can really you're immersed in this world and these characters and stories. And yeah, it's, it, it sort of takes you away from everything else. And yeah, it's just fun. So this is The Devil's Advocate, Steve Kavanagh. 13 is also an Eddie Flynn book, 50-50 that we discussed in this, also an Eddie Flynn book, also worth your while dipping back into. I often find that's quite nice. So I recommended Michael Connolly to my best mate, who, as you know, listens to this big fan of yours. Mm. And uh, having got into Lincoln Lawyer, then he's, he's gone right the way back. I mean, he's on the very first Bosch now and he's working Yay. all the way. I mean, that's 1992 or something, you know? Yeah, so it's cool. And it's nice to know you've got those things there, isn't it? So we're coming towards the end of this season, but we have still got a couple of big writers to come to tantalise you. And I can tell you now, because we've done it, so we know it's there, that Anthony Horowitz is on the way. He so is. don't go 
anywhere. And that book's brilliant as well, A Line to Kill. So Anthony Horvitz, still to come. And you can get in touch with us as usual on the email. It's bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com, bestsellerspodcast at gmail.com. Did you have to think about it for that one? Did you, did you say? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did. Could you hear the cogs? It's a dramatic pause, It's uh, not referred to it podcast. for a couple of weeks. What is it? <laughs> it's me age, love. Fine. And happy reading, everyone. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>